chapter five of pioneer life among the loyalists in upper canada by w s harrington chapter five school teachers and preachers the loyalists were so busy in clearing the land and getting the new home into shape that little time was left for looking after such matters as educating the young there were no laws regulating the school system no buildings nor funds for school purposes no officials to take the lead and what was done was the spontaneous outcome of a desire to equip the rising generation for the duties of citizenship footnote the first enactment of any kind respecting schools in upper canada was passed in eighteen o seven this made very inadequate provision for the establishment of one public school in each district the first legislative attempt to encourage assist or regulate common schools was by an act passed in eighteen sixteen both of these statutes were very crude and left much to be desired End note. the first efforts were those of the mother and other elder members of the household later on a few families clubbed together and employed a man to instruct their children in the rudimentary elements of a common school education there was no building for the purpose so a room was set apart in one of the dwellings probably the only room on the ground floor and while the good housewife busied herself about her duties on one side of the room the teacher was training the young ideas how to shoot on the other side for one or two weeks he would remain with this family getting his board and washing and two or three dollars a week and then he would move on to the next neighbor with his little flock and so on until the circuit of his subscribers of five or six families was completed when he commenced again at the first as late as eighteen eighteen in a contract entered into between a teacher and a few of the farmers in one of the first townships we find the covenant to teach in the following words that the party of the first part engages to keep a good school according to his ability and to teach reading writing and arithmetic his hours were from eight o'clock in the morning until four in the afternoon with one and a half hours for noon he was to teach every alternate saturday in addition to his board lodging and washing he was to be paid the princely salary of twelve and one half dollars a month whereof one half in cash at the end of the quarter and the other in orders or other value monthly soon the little log schoolhouse appeared not larger than fifteen by twenty feet with a door in one end and a window on each side on the inside holes were bored in the logs about two feet six inches from the floor pegs inserted and upon these pegs rested a plank this was the desk and the pupils while working at it necessarily sat with their faces towards the wall a rude bench without a back was the only seat books were very scarce about the only real school book that ever found its way into the hands of the pupil was mayer's spelling book the new testament was the universal reader and if any other books were in use in the school the teacher was the only one who had access to them the three r's reading writing and arithmetic were the extent of the general curriculum there were no authorized textbooks and such as were in use were far from perfect footnote the act of eighteen sixteen required the trustees of each school to report to the district board of education the books used in the school and it was lawful for the board to order and direct such books not to be used but no one was clothed with authority to order what books should be used 
and note for many years the only geography used in the schools contained the following information relating to the continent of america what is america the fourth part of the world called also the new world how is north america divided into old mexico new mexico canada or new france new england and florida the next answer must have been particularly enlightening to the ambitious youth thirsting for knowledge what is new france a large tract of ground about the river st lawrence divided into east and west called also mississippi or louisiana having given this very lucid explanation the author then proceeds to make his readers feel at home by acquainting them with their neighbors what does the east contain besides canada properly so called it contains diverse nations the chief of which are the esquimaux hurons christinals algonquins ectomans and iroquois the considerable towns are quebec tadoussac and montreal what is new britain it lies north of new france and is not cultivated but the english who possess it derive a great trade in beaver and originac skins in passing it may be pointed out that originac or more correctly orignac was the name applied to the moose the painful part of the story of this most extraordinary geography is that what i have already quoted was all there was between its two covers in any way touching upon north america footnote documentary history of education in upper canada volume one page one o six end note the great drawback to the legislative efforts to improve the system was the lack of uniformity each section and later each district followed its own inclination and no satisfactory results were attained until edgerton ryerson introduced his reforms and brought every school in upper canada under the same general supervision the old teacher of the pioneer days is gone from us forever and while he served his day and generation as well as he could we cannot entertain any feelings of regret that he will never return brute force played an important part in his system of instruction the equipment of no school was complete without a tause or leather strap and the offending pupil was frequently dispatched to the neighbouring woods to cut from a beech tree the instrument of torture to be applied to his particular case the minor parts of speech were recognised as such not from the functions performed by them in the sentence in which they appeared but from the fact that they were in the list which the pupil was forced to memorise with was a preposition because it was in the list of prepositions and forth was an adverb because the teacher said it was and if by chance from nervousness or any other cause the boy with a treacherous memory failed to place it under its proper heading a flogging was considered a proper chastisement for the offence it sometimes happened that a boy did not see eye to eye with his teacher upon this question of corporal punishment and a scrimmage would ensue if the teacher came out second best his usefulness in that neighbourhood was gone to be learned as the teacher was supposed to be was a distinction which gave him a certain amount of prominence and opened up for him several other fields of usefulness he was frequently called upon as arbitrator to adjust complicated accounts or to settle disputes in the measurement of wood or lumber or to lay out a plot of ground with a given acreage he was the court of last resort in matters of orthography and spelling 
if he happened to be of a religious turn of mind he might be called upon to fill the pulpit in the absence of the regular clergyman the squire and the school-teacher each played his part in the administration of the affairs of the neighbourhood each carried some weight and commanded a certain amount of respect but both yielded first place to the clergyman while there were several other denominations the anglicans presbyterians and methodists formed the great mass of the population the anglicans were the pampered class they received most of the public favours and were correspondingly haughty and independent for the first fourteen years of the settlement the clergymen of this church enjoyed a monopoly in the matter of marrying it was a common occurrence before there was a protestant parson or minister duly ordained residing in the province for a justice of the peace to tie the knot and in rarer cases still for a military officer to perform the ceremony footnote all such marriages were confirmed and made valid by the marriage act passed in seventeen ninety three and it was declared lawful for a justice of the peace to solemnize marriages under certain circumstances when the parties lived eighteen miles from a parson of the church of england in seventeen ninety eight the privilege of performing the marriage ceremony was extended to the ministers of the presbyterian church and as they did not insist upon the wedding party going to the church the minister secured many fees which otherwise would have gone to his anglican brother of the cloth the great democratic body of methodists were severely handicapped and did not come to their own until eighteen thirty one when the gate was thrown wide open and the clergy of nearly every recognized religious denomination were placed upon the same footing in respect to marrying as the anglicans and presbyterians some of the extreme loyalists could not reconcile methodism and loyalty to the crown and the records inform us of more than one persecution for preaching the doctrines of the methodist church in fact one duly elected member of the legislative assembly was refused his seat in the house because he had upon occasion filled the pulpit in a methodist meeting-house it is only fair to those who supported such extreme measures to explain that these extraordinary occurrences took place at a time when the feeling in this country against the united states was very strong and the methodist body in upper canada was under the jurisdiction of a general conference across the line the life of a preacher even in our day is not one of unadulterated bliss but as far as the comforts of this world are concerned the modern clergyman has a very easy time of it when compared with the life of the pioneer preacher of a hundred or more years ago then the clergyman travelled on horseback with his bible and a change of clothing in his saddle-bags preaching ten or twelve times a week in churches schoolhouses taverns and the log-cabins of the settlers wherever a few could be collected to receive the gospel message in all kinds of weather he might be seen plodding along through the heavy snowdrifts or fording the unbridged streams upon his holy mission to the remotest corners of the settlements no complaint escaped his lips as he threaded his way through the lonely forest now and then humming a few snatches from some old familiar hymn perchance he halted beside a spring for his midday meal and fervently thanked god from whom all blessings flow as he hauled from his spacious pockets the sandwiches furnished by his host of the night before 
his circuit extended sometimes for fifty sixty or an hundred miles and he rarely spent his evenings at home if he had one but slept where night overtook him glad of the opportunity to share a bunk with his parishioner's children or make himself as comfortable as he could upon a mattress on the floor his uniform may have been frayed and not of the orthodox cut his sermons may not have possessed that virtue of brevity which so many congregations now demand they may have fallen far short of some of the sensational discourses of to-day but he was a faithful exponent of the gospel the plain and simple truth as he found it exemplified in the life of our saviour that the pioneers closely followed the tenets of the golden rule is largely due to the self-sacrificing efforts and exemplary life of the early missionaries among the methodists no other religious gathering could compare with the camp meeting it was the red-letter week of the year given up wholly to prayer singing and exhortation in selecting a location for these annual gatherings there were several details to be considered the first essential was a grove high and dry and free from underbrush accessible both by land and water the auditorium was in the shape of a horseshoe about one-half acre in extent surrounded by tents made of canvas or green boughs supported by poles across that part corresponding with the opening in the shoe was a preacher's platform in front of it was a single row of logs the penitent bench and the rest of the space was filled with parallel rows of logs the pews thither by land and water came the devout methodists of the district but then as now the women far outnumbered the men in their religious observance with them they brought chests of provisions their bedding and bibles morning noon and night the woods resounded with songs of praise the warning messages of the preachers and the prayers of the faithful pitched in every conceivable key the surroundings seemed to add an inspiration to the services when the great throng joined fervently in all hail the power of jesus name to the accompaniment of the rustling leaves the hearts of all present were deeply moved during the closing exercises marching in pairs around the great circle with mingled feelings of gladness and sorrow they sang lustily the good old hymns and then with many affectionate leave-takings dispersed to their several homes the methodists looked upon dancing not only as a very worldly but also as a very sinful form of amusement and as the violin was closely associated with the dance it also was placed under the ban the loyalists were musically inclined but during the first years of the settlements little opportunity was offered for the development of their talents in that direction later on singing in unison was extensively practised and singing schools were organized during the winter months in nearly every neighbourhood there was a great scarcity of musical instruments before the introduction of the accordion and concertina both of which were invented in eighteen twenty nine the members of the society of friends or quakers as they were more commonly called were sorely handicapped by reason of their refusal to take an oath under any circumstances by their strict adherence to this article in their creed they were debarred from holding any public office or giving evidence in any court of law that this was a great hardship from which no relief could be obtained except by legislative enactment goes without saying 
one of their number was regularly elected to the first parliament and trudged through the forest to the seat of government at the assembling of the members from purely conscientious scruples he refused to take the prescribed oath so his seat was declared vacant and he trudged back home again it is not to the credit of the other denominations of christians that no steps were taken to relieve the quakers from the disability under which they were placed until twenty-five years of patient endurance it is true the disability was self-imposed but they were actuated by the purest of motives and their exemplary lives and standing in the community entitled them to more consideration from their fellow-citizens the relief first extended to them after the lapse of a quarter of a century was only partial and allowed them to give evidence in civil courts by a simple affirmation instead of an oath the legislature having to that extent admitted the principle of affirming instead of taking an oath could find very little to justify its course in postponing for another twenty years the admission of the quakers to their full rights by accepting their affirmation in criminal courts and in all other matters in which an oath was required the quakers took a most decided stand against the law of primogeniture whereby the eldest son of a man who died intestate inherited all the real estate of his father to the exclusion of all the other sons and daughters in this respect they were in advance of their age and insisted upon an equitable distribution among all the children of the deceased many a young friend was given the alternative of dividing among his brothers and sisters the real estate thus inherited according to law or of submitting to the humiliation of being expelled from the society to their credit it can be said that very rarely was there any occasion to enforce the latter alternative the statute abolishing primogeniture came into force on january first eighteen fifty two the quakers were uncompromising in their opposition to the liquor traffic and could be relied upon to support all measures for the advancement of temperance they were progressive in educational matters they established and maintained efficient schools and generally took a deep interest in all matters directed towards the general improvement of the country beneath their quaint garb and solemn faces there frequently was found a deep sense of humour all the more effective when expressed in their peculiar form of speech End of chapter five